Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of Gatekeeper. I am Jamie Flam because that's what my parents decided to name me when I was just a little, little baby. You know, you were a baby once, too, just crawling around, eating, playing with toys, doing like whatever, (laughs) because that's what babies do. And sometimes... They have little bow and arrow sets and they shoot the arrows at adults so they fall in love. That is the cutest, right? It's like, hey, thanks little buddies. That was pretty rad of you. You can't even talk yet, but you're able to discern the importance of love and human connection and then aim an arrow to bring these values to life in other humans. (laughs) Uh, That little Cupid chunk is why I stopped doing stand-up years ago because all of my material was meandering observations about babies. And people didn't know whether to laugh or not. I think mostly because it wasn't clear what was supposed to be funny. So to all the comedians listening to this show, I implore you to go through your material. Is there a Cupid in your current set? If so, I advise you to eliminate the Cupid. Or try to tighten the Cupid. Otherwise, you're shooting your arrows right over the audience's heads. And no one wants to be looking up when the show is right in front of them. And that, my friends, is a gatekeeper nugget to put in your front pocket. Gatekeeper Nuggets, weighing down your front pockets since just now. Okay, so now that part of the episode is over, and now we're going to try something new, and instead of just sharing one conversation on today's episode, I'm going to play a couple shorter interviews that I've done, because here's the thing about podcasting. There are no rules, man. You can do one long interview per show. You can do three short interviews per show. You can do two medium interviews and a short interview. You could do eight long interviews per show if you really wanted to, or not even do interviews at all. Hell, if you wanted, you could just make a weird buzzy sound with your mouth for five minutes and release it as a podcast. The point is, I am super creative, and I inspire you to be too. So, the first interview on today's episode is with a fella named Mason Curry, and he is the author of a fantastic book that came out a couple years ago called Daily Rituals. Now, one of the recurring themes on this podcast so far has been productivity. Our favorite artists, producers, and entrepreneurs all have one thing in common, and that is that they get shit done. I personally marvel at the work ethics of many of the luminaries that I look up to and wonder how they have the energy and drive to constantly be making new things and moving forward. We've all heard the evergreen piece of advice. Um, We've all heard the evergreen piece of advice that we don't need to reinvent the wheel just to simply emulate the habits of our heroes then this book is a great start as it documents the daily habits of hundreds of the greatest minds in world history, including famed novelists, poets, playwrights, painters, philosophers, scientists, and mathematicians. Yes, famed mathematicians, folks. You know, like uh, David Plus Sign and Mary Remainder. <laughs> Maybe I should have stayed in stand-up, right? Anyway, some of the daily routines described in this book are pretty out there. But what was most inspiring to me was that regardless of how unorthodox each person's routine was, it was, in fact, a routine. It was a ritual. Each person found their own way of being the most productive and in most cases committed their lives to it. And of course, the comedy world is no different. Every successful stand-up and writer and producer knows they must be writing or performing constantly. And so they find a way to make that happen. 
Sitting down and writing every day isn't easy, especially when you have a full-time job, like, say, booking a comedy club. But it's important to me, so I do it. And as a result, you got that fucking amazing Cupid Nugget intro to this episode. And you're getting these words that I'm saying right now into a microphone, Prairie Dog Volcano. So remember, whether you are productive or not productive, you still have daily habits and rituals. So if you aren't getting stuff done the way you want, start tweaking your everyday schedule until you find what works for you. Then do that all the time. Easy peasy. So with no further ado, here's a short Skype conversation I had with author Mason Curry, starting with the question, first and foremost, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I was, uh, I got the idea in a fit of procrastination. Um, fittingly enough, uh, several years ago, I was uh, trying to write a story for a magazine that I worked for at the time. Uh, I had gone into the office on a Sunday afternoon to try to knock this thing out that was due the next morning. And as often happens to me, I just couldn't uh, buckle down and get it done. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm a real morning person. I, I tend to do my best work first thing, like if I get can get up early enough. Um, and if I put things off until the afternoon, I often have a really hard time focusing. So um, I this particular afternoon, I remembered reading about some other writers I admired who had the same problem, who could only write first thing in the morning. And as part of a way of procrastinating from doing my work and, and to make myself feel better, I was uh, searching for some more information about these other writers. And um, it occurred to me that somebody should start collecting these um, anecdotes uh, in one place. So first I started a blog uh, collecting information about people's daily routines. And uh, then I had the opportunity to do this book. Awesome. And then so how did the book come about? Well, when I started the blog, it was really just like, I think I had a record of like 12 visitors in in a month. It was really just like me and a couple of coworkers and friends who looked at it. Mm-hmm. And then um, after like a year and a half, uh, it got picked up by a writer for Slate.com, uh, mentioned it. And then all of a sudden I had like 50,000 visitors nice. <laughs> in a month. And uh, I got a couple of emails from um, some book editors and literary agents saying, you know, you should, you should think about turning this idea into a book. And um, honestly, I had up until that point, I'd been thinking maybe I could like write a magazine article or something, you know, using the information. So I, I hadn't even seriously thought about doing a book until that point. That's so cool. So then writing this book kind of took over your life for a while? Sort of, yeah. I mean, uh, as, as most um, aspiring writers will tell you, it, it doesn't necessarily pay the bills to write a book. So mm-hmm. um, I continued to work full-time at this magazine where I was, um, and then I had to devise my own uh, strict daily routine in order to simultaneously put the book together. So I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, uh, every weekday morning, and work on the book for two hours, and then uh, go to my day job, and then like maybe two or three evenings a week, go to the library in the uh, in the evening to, to research for the book, and then also work on the weekends, of course. And so how was your own, the, your ritual for writing this book, was it inspired in any way by the people that you were researching and then some of the artists? And maybe actually, maybe talk about some of the people and types of people that you, uh, you know, uh, showcased in this book. Yeah, well, the book is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's writers and visual artists and composers and philosophers and um, some scientists and inventors. There's sort of a, a huge variety of creative minds from the last few hundred years. Um, mostly I tried to pick people who are, you know, 
household names who are, who are famous um, figures because I think it's kind of fun to have that uh, juxtaposition of like these sort of great minds, the Beethovens and Picassos uh, and the sort of mundane details of their daily lives. Mm-hmm. I kind of like uh, those two things together. Um, so in terms of what I drew on, uh, I was definitely, you know, interested in anybody else who had to work a day job and do their creative work on the side. So there are some stories like that in the book. Um, for instance, um, Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22 in the evenings uh, after his day job. He worked in advertising mm-hmm. and would um, come home and work on Catch-22 at the kitchen table uh, after work. So that was that was one person who I, who I thought, you know, I can, I can put in a couple hours in addition to work if, if that guy can. For sure. And so let me ask you this. Were there any major patterns that you saw over all these people and did everyone wake up early? Is I guess what I'm asking. Yeah. Do I have to wake up early <laughs> to be an artist? That's the that's the big question. Everyone's like, so what's the takeaway? Like, what's the daily routine? And I mean, I think unfortunately there is no like one uh, perfect daily routine or one set of behaviors that is going to guarantee that people are more creative or productive. I was more kind of just trying to show like the huge variety of behaviors and habits that helped people do their work, and, and a lot of times. You know, it's like everyone's daily routine is this kind of uh, makeshift uh, method for dealing with whatever obstacles they have in their day. So some people are trying to squeeze in creative work around day jobs. Other people, you know, they have family members that they have to kind of work around their schedules or they might have illnesses or other uh, problems. Um, so there is no like kind of perfect thing. You know, I don't think you have to be an early riser. Um, I, I do think there were a few habits that jumped out. There are all, a, a lot of people that took long walks as part of their daily routine, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Um, it seems like squeezing in a walk in your day is a really good way to kind of get yourself to, um, you know, get your mind kind of running on a productive track and coming up with new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of naps in the book. I think anyone who's a nap taker can uh, can appreciate the uh, the usefulness of squeezing in a nap in terms of like kind of refreshing your mental energy. That's good to know. Um, and there's a lot of coffee drinking in the book, which anyone who's a coffee drinker, I think, will be glad to know. <laughs> so coffee, naps, and walking, that would be the, the, the three-prong approach to making beautiful art. Yeah, well, and then the I think the the real thing is like to figure out what time of day is your kind of best time of day. You know, for me, it's first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely people in the book who it was like late at night or even in the middle of the afternoon, and um, then kind of do whatever you can to arrange your schedule so that you can kind of carve out an hour or two during that productive time every day. That seemed to be, and then and then do that every day. The the repetition itself uh, seems to be really valuable. What, did you, were there any patterns amongst the different types of people? Like were most playwrights or most uh, maybe comedians or composers? Did any, Was there any patterns amongst those types of art forms? Uh, there did seem to be sort of a split between, on the one hand, writers and composers seem to work in a similar way. And then on the other hand, uh, the more visual artists seem to work in kind of a different way. It's uh, a lot of writers and also composers and people who, who worked with, uh, you know, playwrights and poets um, 
seem to really struggle with their work mm-hmm. on a kind of a daily basis and even like a kind of minute by minute basis. You know, they, they, there's a lot of talk about like kind of having to grind your teeth and push yourself forward one word at a time and it being this kind of constant struggle. Um, a lot of the visual artists, like the painters in particular, they talk about getting into more of a flow state more often. You have people like Picasso talking about how he'll get in front of the canvas and, you know, hours will evaporate and he'll have been pacing back and forth and he doesn't know where the day went. And um, so I think, I I don't know if that's like a left brain, right brain thing, um, but there does seem to be a difference in in the working methods there. Awesome. Now, was there any particular person um, that really stood out as having a, particularly out there routine particularly out there routine or surprising um, well probably the weirdest uh habit in the book was this um 18th century german uh poet and historian named um friedrich schiller mm-hmm. uh and schiller claimed that he uh would keep a drawer full of rotting apples in his workroom because hmm. he needed their uh, decaying smell in order to feel the urge to write. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is pretty weird. It's pretty weird, yeah. And I don't know, that's like the only information I could find about that. So it's sort of one of these bizarre details that... <laughs> when I have rotting apples, it just means that I haven't been able to make my juice for the week. <laughs> no, yeah, it's like, no, I prefer rotting bananas. <laughs> um. Awesome. Now, what about in general? Do you think any of these, you know, people that you focused on were happy? Yeah, I think some of them were. <laughs> Not everybody is a miserable wreck. Um, you know, I think it's like there's definitely some people who are kind of tortured by their work and it's a, a constant struggle for them. And then there are people who are able to get into kind of into a kind of a happy, productive lifestyle. I mean, I was struck by how many writers in particular talk about how they really just need to get in a few good hours a day and, and that that's usually enough that that doing more than two or three hours is often unproductive or even counterproductive. Um, so it's about kind of fixing your schedule so you can get in those good couple of hours. Um, I think it probably depends on what kind of creative work you're trying to do, whether you need more time. Um, I think a lot of the painters especially needed uh, to work longer hours. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, if they could if they could work their schedule to where they could get in those good hours, that they could be happy uh, the rest of the time, <laughs> some of them. <laughs> uh, were you happy uh, writing writing your book? Um, I was. I felt a little tortured. You know, it's, it's definitely a struggle. I think anyone out there who's tried to work a full-time job and then do something for themselves on the side you sort of like you have to give something up but you know it's like i could i could be doing well on the book and doing well at my day job but then i would be ignoring my social life or my healthy habits or otherwise i could you know do really well in the book and kind of be a crappy employee for for that week it was always like you're always kind of sacrificing something so um you know it's it's definitely a tricky prospect sure (laughs) What do you do? I'm just curious because, um, you know, something I want to talk about on this podcast a lot is, is focus and especially the focus required to write a book and do all this research. Did you, were there any like online tools or, um, um, that you use to kind of block out all the distractions when waking up at five thirty to do this? Mm, online tools. Um, I'm a big fan of a website called simplynoise.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if anyone else will find this useful, but if you're working someplace that has background noise, uh, as I often am, um, 
at the time I was living in Brooklyn and, and there was a lot of street noise. And I also, my office had kind of a cubicle set up with a lot of noise. Um, I like to plug into this simplynoise.com website and use like the white noise to kind of block out distractions. And that really helps me. Uh, it's amazing how having that constant kind of whooshing background noise can really help focus. For sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, I'm going to wrap up. I wanted to ask, this is kind of a, a overarching question, but do you have in your life, aside from anything you learned, and maybe it is something you learned, but some sort of, uh, if you had to distill down to one nugget of wisdom or guiding philosophy or something that gets you through your every day, um, what would you say? Hmm. <laughs> I should have maybe prepped you for this. <laughs> I guess I would, I would, I would say again, it's, um, it, for me, it's really getting up early. I don't know what it is, but if I get up early in the morning, you know, before everybody else is awake and I sit down at my desk for like an hour, I can get more done in that time and, and more better work than I can get done the entire rest of the day. It's like, it's like if I miss that time, I'm just it completely throws me off. So for me, it's really about arranging my schedule to take advantage of that kind of like good, magical morning brain power. And how many hours of sleep do you get a night? I, I get seven hours usually. I go to bed early. Nice. Well, um, where could people buy this book? They can buy it uh, most uh, booksellers, uh, Amazon and other online retailers. And I think uh, most large bookstores should have a copy. Well, thanks, Mason. Um, go out and get his book, and um, we will hopefully have you back on the show at some point soon. Okay, terrific. Gatekeeper. Terrific indeed. Thanks, Mason. Uh, if you couldn't tell, the quality of that interview, sound-wise, was not up to par with the pristine sounds that you've become accustomed to here on Gatekeeper. Well, that's because it was recorded by me on Skype three years ago for a totally different podcast that I had planned at the time, which was about productivity and the search for meaning in life and big concepts like that. I spoke a lot about that podcast and the importance of just putting yourself out there in episode four, an interview I did with Brent Forrester. But thinking about what I talked about in episode four and just putting in the work has got me thinking, as it always does, about a lot of things. And I am a human being that has struggled a lot with issues of self-sabotage and the fear of being judged by others. And maybe laziness has been a factor in a lot of my productivity or lack thereof. So I get excited when I watch something grow and change before my eyes. Like this podcast. You know, I still constantly struggle to get things done. But one thing that's helped me more than anything else is a system of accountability. It's of course unfortunate, but being accountable to ourselves can sometimes be the most difficult challenge of all. In the last year, I've had a writing partner that has enforced a schedule that requires output. And six months after starting our first treatment, we are now pitching two projects with treatments and pilot scripts done. The constant deadlines of booking a comedy club have always kept me on my feet. But putting my vision out publicly on this podcast has forced me to step up to the plate. And having this podcast on a set schedule with a network and a producer has forced me to get an episode done every week. Whether it's an inspired conversation with a comedy luminary or a cobbled-together hodgepodge of old interviews and self-congratulatory motivational speaking. So thank you, Producer Andrew, for creating a dynamic that ensures that listeners to this podcast get to hear this again. Funny sound go up, 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 up. Funny sound go down, 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 down. Ah, I love that so much.
I say up, 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 and then down, 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 down. And I just love that. And I want you to spread that around because isn't that a metaphor for life, if nothing else? These these mountains that we climb. Oof. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Into our second interview of this episode. Now, this person has had a tremendous impact in the comedy world. His name is Chris Mazzilli, and in 1999, he opened the Gotham Comedy Club, which is one of the best comedy clubs in this country. And in addition to that, it's also where the great stand-up comedy show Live from Gotham is taped, surprisingly enough, right? So we had a great conversation. He was here from New York, and I sat down with him and talked about a lot of the themes that we've been talking about on this podcast for a while. I think you're going to enjoy it. So here you go. Hey, thanks for coming to Gatekeeper. You got it, pal. Happy to be here. Thanks Uh, for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. You're, You're the perfect guest. So you own and book the Gotham Comedy Club. Correct. How did, how, what? Yeah. Where well, did you start? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, long story, sh- story short, I, uh, I was going to Columbia on a soccer scholarship. I want to be an attorney. I blew my knees out. That ended. I went to FIT, studied menswear design, did that for a month, went to acting school. What did you design in that month? I worked for this couture designer who was no longer in business. Uh, not too much, to be honest but with no you. But no revolutionary new no, underwear? No groundbreaking stuff. Damn it. You know, I was slinging uh, fabric, to be honest with you. Um, went to acting school. Started working as an actor. From there, I started doing stand-up. When I started doing stand-up, I started going to clubs, and I was like, you know what? These clubs don't treat people very well. You know, their audience, the comedians. I was like, I think I could do a better job. And I met this guy who was doing stand-up at the time, and he's a Wall Street guy. He had some money. Put a couple of bucks together and opened Gotham 20 years ago and we got lucky, took off and- Probably you know, more than a couple of bucks. Yeah, it was a little more than a couple of bucks. <laughs> like how much? Yeah, I mean, know. you can't give real numbers probably, but- You know what? It was 20 years ago and we did it on a shoestring budget. You know, I mean, to be honest, it was, it was under a half a million. Mm-hmm. Well, I had Todd Glass on recently and, and we've talked about it and I know it's, it does not take much to make the experience- or the comedians and the, the audience, you know, better than you can find most other places. True. You know, you just have to have the want to do it, you know? And it's like, and for me, it's like, it, it's all about that. Um, fortunately, I have a great staff. Many have been there 10 plus years, you know, some almost the whole time I've been there, 19 years. Um, so everybody kind of knows what's expected of them. And it's all about giving the customer a great, you know, experience. And the same thing with the comedians, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that club was designed with comics in mind. So the height of the stage, you know, what the, the, I mean, I drove the sound engineer crazy to get the sound. I mean, literally it took two years. Mm-hmm. The guy thought it was fucking out of my mind, but we got it right. You know, you know, little things like the dressing room, like, you know, we put like a little basket down there with the items that the act likes, you mm-hmm. know, the dressing room has a shower. They want to take a shower, you know, private bathroom, oh, those, wow. you know, it's, but it's important stuff. Cause you know, I mean, if you were a headliner, you really want to be taking a leak out there in the general public. You want them to take Probably. a leak in the shower. Right. Like, you know, and and we have like, yeah. you know, a private entrance that can come through another part of the building. So it's just little things like that make a difference, you know. But I'd say the main thing is the shows run on time. You know, we police the room very well. Um, so, yeah. How often do uh, comics take a shower? I'd say once a year. Once a year? Yeah. Who is it? Different people for different reasons, I'm you know. I'm trying to get names out of you. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't divulge that information. That's, that makes you a good comedy booker. See that? Not naming names. That's right. So part of this podcast is about just showing both sides of the booking spectrum to comics. Yeah. And 
you know, as a booker of one of the biggest clubs in, in, the, in the country, in the world, what, um, what are some uh, points of advice you would give to comics that are trying to get booked at your club? You know, we look at everybody. Um, and now that we do this TV show out of there, Gotham Comedy Live, we look mm-hmm. at even more talent. You know, I mean, I've looked at 2,500 comedians in the past two and a half years. Uh, so between myself, my brother, and Sean Flynn, who books the room, we look at a lot of talent, you know. So I, I would say make sure you're ready when you send your stuff in, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're not ready and I look at your tape, I may say, you know what, in my mind, this guy's a year or two away or this girl's a year or two away and then I probably won't look at you again for a year or two. So mm-hmm. there's no rush. We're going to be there. We've been there 20 years. We'll probably be there another 20 years or 40. Who knows, you know. So don't rush it, you know, and I would think about if you're going to send, you know, your work or a tape of your work, try to pick the stuff that you feel is most unique, but represents you best, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, we've all heard the same stuff over and over again. So unless you have a different take on something, it's not really going to stand out, you know? So what is it that you're going to do, you know, that's going to make you stand out from the crowd? How often does like a cold submission, you know, garner your attention versus, you know, the groundswell that kind of happens when comics are just ready? You know, more than you'd expect, you know, and only because I watch a lot of the stuff myself. Um, I would say five, eight percent of the time, which is a fair amount, you know, because if you look at the amount of people that we're looking at, mm-hmm. that's that represents a lot of comedians. In the last like five, ten years with the comedy boom that we're experiencing now, how has that affected your club? It's been good. It's been a good ride. You know what I mean? What's interesting about New York is is there are so many clubs. There are twenty plus clubs. That's insane. You know? Yeah. Um, and many operate seven nights a week you know, or at least five nights a week. Um, what's not great is a lot give free tickets out in the street, you know? So you have your average Joe walking down the street that don't, you know, know what they're in for. And they go into these clubs that literally tell them that Chris Rock's going to be there or Dave Chappelle, you know? And I know because the customers come to my club the next night and go, I want the, you know, whatever the fuck comedy club it was, you know? And they were like, you know, the drinks were super expensive because it's basically bait and switch. Yeah. They're letting the people in for free, but they charge them 12 bucks for a beer. So yeah, you're not paying the cover, but you're paying for the drink, you know? And then they see subpar talent. Could you like uh, distill down like the two or three top things that you think separate Gotham from the other New York clubs? You know what? I I don't really kind of focus on what they're doing. I just focus on what we're doing, you know? And we really maintain the club well. Like Mm -hmm. I got a full-time cleaning crew that comes in every day and cleans every inch of that club. You know, we maintain it. You know, we paint it. There's no lights. There's no busted things. I hate when anything's busted. I don't like it, you know? Uh, we really kind of make sure that they have a great experience. They have good customer. We have good customer service, you know? And the second somebody answers the phone or you greet at the door to when you get sat at your table, and if people are not happy with their table, and that sometimes happens, we'll try to accommodate anything we can within reason. Love it. And then what, as far as, um, you know, social media and how that's changed everything and, and how, how have you guys embraced that and how has that helped you guys? You know, it's a game changer. You know, when you can reach your customers, you know, whether it's email, you know, because we have a huge email list, you know, or, you know, your Twitter feed or Facebook or all that stuff, you know, you have an announcement you want to make, you can reach people immediately, you know? So it's, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. And it's actually, it's a, it's a better thing for comedians, you know, because I mean, listen, I know most comedians, but if if an agent calls you up and says, Hey, you know, I got this new comic, you got to book them. I'll go look at what their social media, you know, profile is. You know, what are they doing out there? What are they working on? Mm-hmm. You know, are they active on Twitter? How many followers do they have? You know, are they active on Facebook? You know, and that weighs, I mean, of course, they have, we're assuming they have talent. Sure. They need that first, but that other stuff helps. 
And then you also are a talent manager. True. What? So, I mean, that's very telling as far as, you know, what you look for um, in talent. Um, here's an opportunity to promote your favorite clients. And the only answer is all of them. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, you know what? To be honest, I have a very small roster, and you know I have a management relationship with Levity. We kind of run the New York office for them. So the clients that we work on with them are about eight, you know, so it's, it's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And for me, I have to believe, you know, and, and I do with my brother Steve, you know, that we could further that person's career and that their goals are realistic, you know. And to be honest with you, I, I think anything's achievable, you know. So, like, you know, we have... Johnny Brennan from the Jerky Boys. Uh, we have this new kid, Leonard Oots. Love that guy. You know, he's 23 years old. He's blowing up. He's actually filming a pilot here uh, for MTV this week. Um, we have this girl, uh, Ashley Austin Morris. She's a great actress, but also a very strong stand-up. Uh, Rachel Feinstein, who just mm-hmm. shot a pilot for Comedy Central. Um, Gina Brion, Pete Corielli, Sebastian Maniscalco, mm-hmm. who's a beast. I mean, you know. Oh, he's, my God, yeah. It's... I mean, in my opinion, I think he's one of the best stand-ups to ever do stand-up, you know? Love to get him here at the Improv more. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. All right. Listen. You know, he's, and he, he's actually shooting uh, a pilot for NBC right now. Tony Danza plays his dad, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and it's great script, great cast, you know? We shoot, we shoot it actually tomorrow night. Yeah. Level. Congrats. It's like a lot of great stuff happening. Yeah, listen, I'm I'm a I'm a lucky guy. I work hard, but I feel very blessed to do what I do. I love the business, you know. And where do you see? I mean, the next few years. Um, where do you see the the future of comedy at the club, and for you, and for management, and everything? You know, I, I think that the club will continue to be the club. You know, I mean, uh, hopefully, the TV show that we're doing there now uh, will have a long run. You know, I like the production end of stuff. You know, um, probably take on a couple more clients, not too many more. You know, it's just it's it's going at a nice nice even pace. Love it. It's a good place. So any final advice for, for comics um, of any age or any experience level as far as, um, you know, things that might, uh, you know, either be frustrating or just tack to that's take? A, that's a good, you know what? I mean, look, this is a hard business and it is frustrating, but you got to believe in yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to be patient and you have to work hard. You'd be surprised how many comics I talk to and they want it so bad. And I go, how often are you going to stage? And I go, oh, once or twice a week. Well, how good are you going to be if you're going to want, to? it's like, you know, talking to a professional basketball player, how often do you practice? They told you once or twice a week, how fucking good are they going to be? You know, you got to put the time in, mm-hmm. you know, and I say this to people all the time, nobody can stop you, but you in this business. So if it's really what you want, put the time in, you know, do your homework, you know, go to clubs, look at the guys who work in those clubs and girls, you know, what are they doing that you're not doing? You know, right. I mean, people are fortunate today that, these phones that we have, a device where they can record anything, anytime, and whether it's just you're dictating stuff to it, you know, or recording your sets, you should be doing that. You have a good idea, either put it, put it into your notes or record it, you know? I mean, because if you put the time in, you can make it. Because there were guys, like, I'm telling you, I, I can remember seeing comics 15, 20 years ago that sucked. They were not good, you know? I didn't tell them that, mm-hmm. but they put the time in and they worked hard and now they have careers. And I'm not talking about little, I'm talking about big careers, you know, making seven figures, you know? So if you want to make it, you put the time in and it, it's possible for anybody. How do you say no? No, as far as like not being ready or, you know, I, I will get very specific with notes. Like mm-hmm. if somebody really wants to know, I'll break down their whole act and say, look, this is where I think you're deficient. This works, this doesn't work. And, and of course, it's just my opinion. They can tell me to go fuck off and that's fine. 
you know, because they may feel that what they're doing is what they want to be doing. But if you're asking me for my opinion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my opinion, you know. Uh, and it's like, look, I'd rather say yes to everybody. And the reality is it'd make my job a lot better if I could say yes to everybody. Sure. But, the re- you know, that's not possible. You know, not everybody's ready, you know. And I find that, you know what, most people are pretty good at taking criticism because they want to get better. You know, and you know what? I want them to get better. I mean, that that TV show we do is a freaking animal. You know, we've booked 500 different comedians on that show. And I need another 50 for this season, you know? It's a lot. It is a lot. Well, you're doing great things for comedy. I love it. We owe you a debt of gratitude. Well, listen, thanks for having me. And uh, and nobody owes me anything. I'm I'm lucky to be here. That's a good thing. No one knows anything in this business. Yeah. Just work hard. Yeah. Get good. Yeah. Be cool. As fuck. That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks, pal. I appreciate it. Gatekeeper. So there you have it. The first potpourri episode of Gatekeeper. Proof that mixing up the format can work great. (laughs) Two fantastic interviews. Lots of views and perspectives. I mean, I think there will be more of these in the future. What do you think? Do you like me? Am I doing a good job? Am I a good person? Tweet at me at GatekeeperPod on Twitter. (laughs) And a reminder, as I say on the end of every episode, to work on your craft endlessly, be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab. This is a podcast.